You are listening to the Invitation Church podcast. To learn more about Invitation Church, visit us online at invitation605.com. You can also download our app on iTunes and Google Play by searching for Invitation 605. Together uh, tonight, I want to take you back to elementary school. Is that okay? Can we? I know we're maybe not quite back to school yet, but I want to take us back to elementary school if I can. I don't know if you can remember a moment when your teacher handed out a little sheet of paper and you needed to find the different objects on it. Anybody with me? Anybody remember that? Okay, so we're going to do that together because why not? All right, so we're going to need to find a couple things. We have to find a bell. We have to find a glove. We have to find a saucepan, a slice of bread, and a pear. Are you ready? Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so here it is. So a bell, a glove, a saucepan, a slice of bread, and a pear. How are we doing so far? Got it? Got it? Yeah, okay, so let's look. Some of you are like, a couple things, Pastor. A thing number one, that's too small for me to look at. Number two, that was way too fast. If I give you longer, and if I gave you a little bit of help, would we be able to find it? It's like, would we be able to see a slice of bread right here? Do you see that? We could go down here, and we could find a little bell. Uh, did anyone find the pear? It's on the turtle's back, of course. You might find the saucepan it's right here. So when I slow it down and when I illustrate it a little bit easier, you can see it. But if I don't illustrate it for you and I don't slow it down, it's impossible for you to participate in whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. Uh, you need to know something about Luke. When Luke is writing his second part to his gospel, there are moments in his book that he writes really quickly about what's happening. So there are moments where like a year might go by in a single sentence or maybe two sentences. But then there are moments when he slows it down so that we can pay attention because we don't want to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss it. And this is one of those sections in the book of Acts. He slows the narrative way, way, way down so that we don't miss it. So I want to look at what's going on in the narrative. Because when he slows it down, he wants to say it's important. So let's talk about first, like who's in the story? So the book of Acts has so many characters. There's Greek characters, and there's Jewish characters. There's Roman characters. There are religious characters. There's non-religious characters. The book of Acts unveils, it rolls out like all humanity. But here we have a Roman commander, and the Roman commander was the seat of power. What kind of power, you're asking? I'll tell you political power, and military power. Notice those things go together. 
I'll stop. Uh, the Sanhedrin is in the story. And like, what's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin is like Bible word number 796. Like, what even is it? We hear it in church. Maybe you've read it before. But what is it? It sounds like a name you would use for like a boil on the skin. Like, look at my Sanhedrin. It's getting worse by the day. Sanhedrin actually is a group of leaders. So you can think of it like the Senate, or you can think of it like the House of Representatives. It was filled with two groups of people. First, it was filled with Sadducees, and it was filled with Pharisees. How many? 71 in total. So you had a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees, kind of what made them stand apart from Pharisees is they did not believe in any kind of resurrection. Like no resurrection ever. That is not a part of the story. What is a part of the story is obedience. What is a part of the story is the law. What is a part of the story is all of the things that you must do in order to be grafted into God's group. So God in history has drawn a big circle and he has said if you do this if you do this if you do this faithfully enough with enough effort and enough conviction and enough perseverance then you can be inside of the circle and the pharisees have a different perspective than that like they proclaim a resurrection and also they proclaim the truth of spirits and angels so you notice in the text, it talked about that. It talked about, is it some spirit or some angel that is speaking through Paul? Guarantee, yes, Sadducee didn't say that. Guarantee that was one of the Pharisee people who stood up and said, hey. So Paul is in this group of people who sometimes did a better job than other times of understanding one another and of getting along. Because it's the House of Representatives. It's the Senate. We don't always understand one another. We don't understand the perspective that the gentlewoman from fill-in-the-blank state has to say. But Paul is in that environment. And Paul finds himself at different stages in his life getting into trouble. Paul has had a few rough days. I don't know if you can think of a moment in life where you've just had a couple rough days. Paul has been emptied emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Like, he's exhausted. This is the moment when you do not have enough energy for someone to even look at you. Like, you're done. Like, you come in the door at night, and it's just over. It was over in the parking lot when you drove you actually don't remember the drive from your workplace to your home. Have you been in one of those situations before? Of course not. We've never been that tired. We've never been that emptied before in life. This is where Paul finds himself. What's he undergone? He has traveled from Ephesus to Jerusalem. So he's traveled some like 600 miles. It's a hard journey. It's a disorienting journey. It's a journey that has emptied him in all kinds of ways. And he's falsely accused. He's accused of 
bringing Greek people into the temple. And the fair, one thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees agree on, we don't do that here. Greek people do not belong in the temple. And Paul wants to say, well, actually, they do if you understand what resurrection actually says. Like, if you understand that resurrection is doing a new thing in a group of people, that everybody that was out is now in, everyone who was dead is now alive, everyone who was emptied before is now full because Jesus is alive. Because he's been raised from the dead, and it actually changes everything. So he's falsely accused, he's beaten, he's arrested, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. I'm going to show you a map of Jerusalem. And I know you're saying, thanks a lot for these microscopic pictures on the big screen, pastor. What is this? Be a mean to your people Sunday? No, it's not. It's the best I can do. So this up here, here's the Mount of Olives. Okay. So here's a city of David in Jerusalem. Here's the Mount of Olives. This is where uh, Jesus sends his disciples away and he prays. And he asks his his inner circle, his inner group of disciples, like, hey, stay here and pray with me because I'm in the midst of intense suffering. That's where that takes place, okay? And then here's the fortress of Antonia. So this is where Paul is being housed, right? So he's he's been arrested for bringing Greek people into the temple. We could say that he's been arrested for practicing resurrection. And can I just say in the room tonight, that when resurrection happens in your life and other people's lives, people will always scoff at it. Like it's never going to be met with a hundred percent applause. People won't understand the new life that you have. People won't have the new spirit that's empowering you. People won't understand the grace that is leaking out of your spirit. Why? Not because you read your Bible more, but no, because you have stepped into more fully the resurrection that Jesus has handed to you. So what if people don't, we, what if we don't need people to get it? What if we don't need people to affirm the thing that God is doing in us? What if we could just allow the Spirit of God to do the thing in us that he wants to do and then we just participate in that? Like, what if we could stop looking to everybody else to affirm the thing that God is doing in me? Church, just let God do the thing that he wants to do in you. Because this has happened for Paul, and we just read what happens to you sometimes when you're living into resurrection. Some people won't get it. So, this is where Paul is. Here's Golgotha. Here's where Jesus is killed. So that just kind of like orients us a little bit. And this is where Paul finds himself in the middle of all kinds of of trouble. He's falsely accused. He's beaten. He's arrested. He's brought before the Senate. He's brought before the House of Representatives. And I don't know if being falsely accused, beaten, arrested, and brought before a group of people, I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody in the House tonight. Like, have you heard that anywhere before? Like, being falsely accused, being beaten, maybe spat on, and flogged, and brought before some kind of ruler who could make a decision about where you would go, if this is like sounding familiar to you, it should. Luke wants you to notice that this is one of the ways that Paul will walk in the footsteps of Jesus. This is one of the ways that Paul is living into 
this one sentence that Jesus said one time, behold, in this world you will have trouble. But trouble will cover you. But take heart. Have courage when that happens. Because I've overcome the world. Because I've breathed resurrection into your story, into the story of all creation. So it's near and it's here and it's available. In verse 1, Paul says, looked straight at the Sanhedrin, and he said, my brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. Like, I fulfilled my duty. The original language doesn't talk about duty as much as it talks about, like, I have lived. Like, I have lived well in front of God. I fulfilled my duty. I don't have a bunch of stuff that I know that needs to be different. I know that needs to change. Like, I, I have walked with faithfulness. And Paul wants to say, like, I can bend my life around all kinds of standards. But I've chosen to bend my life uh, around the standards of God, the invitation of God in my life. I've chosen to bend it around Jesus of Nazareth, like what he asks me to do and the person he desires for me to be. That's what I'm bending my life on. Like I could bend it around Tarsus, which is where Paul grew up. And what's going on in Tarsus is it's all about following this list of rules, following the law, like getting it all right. And Paul's like, yeah, I've bent my life around that. Paul could also bend his life around Rome. Like what does the, all the Roman governors and the prefects and all of these people who are in power want Paul to do? Paul says, no, I've chosen to bend my life around Jesus of Nazareth. And what he desires me to do and the person he desires me to be, that's what my life is based on. And can I just tell you tonight that I believe that there's all kinds of people who want you to bend their life around them. They have all kinds of hopes for you, all kinds of dreams for you, all kinds of visions for you. And one of the things about being a human being living on planet Earth is that we are going to bend our life around someone. We're going to bend it around something. So I think Paul just wants to say, like, why not Jesus of Nazareth? With all of the other options available to us. Like, why not his words being planted deep in our soul? And his ways becoming our way. Paul says, I fulfilled my duty to cut. And then he gets punched in the face. And I know you're not supposed to laugh when someone gets punched in the face. It's just so abrupt in the pipe. Like you're sitting down with this text for your quiet time. You got like your coffee and like maybe like a pastry in your notebook and your green and pink and blue and orange pens. And then you open up to this and it's like, I fulfilled my duty to God up to this day. And then gets punched in the mouth. And there's a truth in this, that getting mixed up with Jesus of Nazareth does anything but remove us from tension 
and trial and hardship. That when we get mixed up with this Jesus guy, it is not this bubble that we step into, a bubble of protection and blessing and ease. When we get mixed up with Jesus of Nazareth, it's going to do anything but leave us away from trial and hardship and pain. There's this guy, Elton Trueblood, and he's a Quaker, and he wrote this in the 70s. And I want this just to like soak on us for a second. Occasionally, we talk about our Christianity as something that solves problems. And there is a sense in which it does. But long before it does so, however, it increases both the number and the intensity of the problems. Even our own intellectual questions are increased by the acceptance of a strong religious faith. If a man wishes to avoid the disturbing effect of paradoxes, the best advice is for him to leave the Christian faith alone. Like if you're looking for that place on the Monopoly board that's going to send you to get the $200 at the beginning of the game, the Jesus way is not going to do that year. Like Jesus talks about it this way, that there's a few different roads in life. Like there's a wide road in life and there's a narrow road in life. And Jesus happens to say, it's not the wide road that leads to life. It's the narrow road that leads to life. And Jesus also says like, hey, only a few find it. Like those people who are just going to miss it. It's not that he doesn't allow people to walk on the road. It's just that people are not going to choose that road. And we have in this text a beautiful example of someone who's chosen the road. And of course it's carried him, it's lifted him, it's pushed him into trial and hardship and pain and difficulty and doubt and despair and anxiety. And so what if when we experience those things, like what if we understand them not as somehow God's judgment on our lives, but what if it's a way, it's an opportunity that, that God is entering those things. Like this, that's what the incarnation is all about. Like when Jesus is, is born out of like this really almost unbelievable story, like this young Jewish girl who's not been married, and Jesus is born in that context. Like, in a very real way, like, he's the first place he steps into on planet Earth is a human womb. As a, as a way by which to take all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of everything that it means to be human, he doesn't protect himself from that. And so I don't think it's wise for us to assume that we are going to be protected from all of that too because what God wants for us is to grow strong in his power and whole in his name. And this is where Paul finds himself. And then verse 3, <laughs> if you thought the punch was funny, it gets funnier. 
verse 3, Paul says, oh, this is just funny to me. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Like, have you ever heard somebody's feelings? And like, the thing they come back with is kind of like, wah, wah. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I think Paul's saying this, he knows this from experience. God has stricken him before. Like he's on the road from Damascus, right, to persecute followers of the way, and God shows up in his story and brings him to his knees. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Knock it off. You are getting in the way of what I want to do in planet Earth, and so I'm bringing you in weakness to your knees. Paul's telling these religious leaders, like, hey, if there's one thing I know about God, he's going to do what he has decided to do on planet Earth. And this whole whitewashed wall thing, what's that about? Well, it's really about Ezekiel 13. In Ezekiel 13, there's this oracle, this sermon, this message from Ezekiel to some of the prophets of Israel. And he's talking about their lives as cracked walls. Then there's this whitewashed veneer that they put on the wall to cover all of the cracks, all of the weak places. And Paul wants to say that is not the way. It's not the way that we would just cover up the things that we don't want other people to see. It's not okay that we would want to pretend that we are someone else before God than who we really are. Because it's only when we come face to face with what is genuine, what is true about us, that there's opportunity for new life and growth and forward motion and movement. So Paul's like, you guys are a bunch of whitewashed walls up here in the Senate. Like you're pretending to be someone that you're not. So you just took a little veneer and you whitewashed yourself. It's similar to what Jesus says. He calls the religious leaders sons of hell, a brood of vipers, a family of snakes, he calls them. He says, you have washed the outside of the cup, but inside the cup, it's nastier than a high school locker room after wrestling practice. This should not be. Sorry if I offended any wrestlers in the house of God something. But Henry Nouwen reminds us of this in this amazing book in the name of Jesus. If you are looking for a book to read with the summer that you have left by Terrace Park Poole, here's a good one. He says, power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Much of Christian leadership is exercised by people who have opted for power and control over the work of love. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. I think Henry's talking about whitewashed walls. And I believe that it would be a ginormous mistake tonight 
for us to think that embracing a life where what we become is this whitewashed wall would be impossible for us. That would be foolish. And it would be wise to heed the truth that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It's easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people. And is there something in our leadership that has been exercised by people who have opted for power and control over the work of love? And then the last section, verse 6. He gets punched. He says, you whitewashed wall, you guys don't get it. And then he says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. He says, my anchor in life, it's not my education, it's not my experience, it's not the stuff that I know. My anchor in life is the hope that I have in the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul asks them this question, can God bring to life something that was dead? That's where it comes down to for Paul. Like, can God bring to life something that was dead? Paul says, absolutely he can. It's part of what God desires to do in the human story. It's part of what he wants to do in history. Like, this is a parallel, I think, to John chapter 11, when this friend of Jesus, this guy named Lazarus, has died. And his sisters are at the entrance uh, to the town that they lived in, a place called Bethany. And they look at Jesus and they say, like, hey, where have you been? If you would have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, watch this. That's a rough translation of the Hebrew. And he gets closer and closer and closer, and he stands at the front of the tomb. And he's like, hey, Lazarus, come out. And he does. Paul says, my anchor is in the hope of the resurrection. So can God bring to life something that was dead? Absolutely. And can I just tell you, like, this changes the way that you live in 2023. And we talk about this a lot here, that resurrection is not something that we're just, like, looking forward to on the day when a bunch of people gather in a room and they read Psalm 23 and they sing, great is thy faithfulness, and there's some pastor with a microphone on their face and they talk about your life and they read the scriptures that your family picked out and then you go to the cemetery and you're laid in the ground and your family enjoys ham sandwiches that's not a day where you need resurrection like resurrection is a thing that's happening now it happens now and it's carried on into the future so yes on that day when your family's gathered around yes their anchor is resurrection but today on July 23rd, 2023, our hope, our anchor is resurrection power. It's the thing that pushes us. It's the thing that gives us courage. Because ultimately, the only way Paul stands in that moment is the courage that he has been given by God. To look at them straight in the eye and say, my brothers... I'm living in full understanding today that I have bet my life around Jesus of Nazareth and not around you. 
and not around your rules. And if there's one place to bend my life, it's around him and his way. One more quote from someone. This is Julian of Norwich. Been dead a long time. Been practicing resurrection a long time. And I'm going to leave you with this. I'm going to invite the band up as we close tonight. He did not say, you will not be troubled. He did not say, you will not be belabored. He did not say, you will not be disquieted. But he did say, you will not be overcome. He didn't say you wouldn't be troubled, didn't say you wouldn't be labored, didn't say you wouldn't be disquieted. But he said you're not going to be overcome. Because you have it all figured out, because you're understanding all the things you're supposed to know, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because your anchor is in the hope of resurrection. So I don't know how, like what you need courage for today. I don't know what you're stepping into when you leave this place. But part of what it means to follow Jesus is to live with great courage and great confidence and great hope in him. Because he's the one we're bending our lives around. And of course it's difficult. Of course it's hard. Of course there's other roads to walk down. But the road that will anchor us, the way that will anchor us, the words that will anchor us are his So let's be people of courage. Not in a confidence in our own way or in our own words, but in the way of the one who came. As we often say, because he loved us. Do you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you today for the beauty of your name and the gathering tonight around the resurrection hope that we have in you. God, I speak courage over this place in the name of Jesus. Courage for the stuff that's painful. Courage for the stuff that's scary. Courage for the stuff that is emptying us courage for the uncertainty courage for the hopelessness courage for the perseverant work of following you and finding our life and our hope and our being in God I pray that this would be a community that's courageous May this will be a community that bends our lives individually and collectively around your words and go away. That even when we stand before people and they don't get it and they don't understand, even when we get punched in the mouth, then when we are emptied by light, we would claim the name of Jesus. And we would claim his way and his words because we bent our life around his 
so it actually impacts what we do on planet Earth as we wait for your return. We thank you that you are our cornerstone, that you lead the way and you set the pace. And if there's anything that we want to build our lives on, it's on you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Invitation Church podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message that you just heard and receive every part of it. Every promise from God, every declaration of his great love for you, every word of hope, every reminder that you have been made for more. Allow what you've heard to take root in your soul to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. I also want to encourage you to be part of what we are doing here at Invitation as we invite people to live the way of Jesus. Go to the app and become a regular giver, an investor in the story that God is writing in this place. Also, if you found the message meaningful, we'd love to have you share it with someone else as you partner with us in carrying the message beyond the walls of the church. I want to thank you for being here with us. Grace and peace.